It's a delight um, to be here today and to preach. I love uh, Adam and Jake. I love your body of Christ here. I've come to know many of you as my wife and I have uh, uh, popped in and out, and we're just so delighted to be here this morning and share God's Word with you. Just as those guys finish up, I'm going to open up in a word of prayer for God to help us this morning, and then we're going to jump in. Okay. Heavenly Father, come and help us right now, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would send your word like a river of fresh, clear, cool water and revive our souls this morning with the truth of God's word. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up on a farm, moved to Minnesota when I was eight years old, and uh, lived there until I was 40 on the same farm. And uh, when I was 40, I went to seminary, got a MDiv and was a, was a preacher for a while. And when I was on that farm, we had a 1270 case tractor with a five bottom plow and I would go out and plow by my farm. And we had a dog named Shep and Shep was a Cocker Spaniel. And when I would drive the tractor out of the farmyard and go out back behind the buildings and drop the plow in that dog, y'all know where I'm going, don't you? That dog would hoof it behind me all the way across the field, all the way back round after round after round. I used to feel sorry for the dog as going along and its tongue was hanging out, a little bit of drool in the wind as it went. And you've seen runners, right, going down the sidewalk and you know the ones that are really fresh, right? They're just, their strides are long and their chins up and they're all cocky looking, right? And then you know the ones that got like two blocks left after four miles and they're just, you know, they're just, well, after my dog looked like it was about to, to pass out, I would stop. You know what I did, right? And I picked it up and I put it in my tractor and I shut the cab door. And then my dog, Shep, would ride with me in that tractor because if I think it, it didn't pick it up, I think it would have killed itself. If I turned, the dog turned. If I went left, it went left. If I went right, it went right. If I had a plug in my plow, sometimes the trash in the field would plug the plow. If I stopped, the dog would stop. If I backed up, the dog would back up. That's what had happened with my dog, Shep. We're going to talk this morning in our sermon about what it means to follow God. God wants followers like my dog, Shep. They want, God wants followers that follow God no matter what, no matter where. When God goes left, when God goes right, when God goes front, when God goes back, whatever happens, God wants followers like that dog that are so devoted that they follow no matter what. Why did my dog follow me like that? Because I took care of it, I fed it, I played with it, right? I had a relationship with that dog, and that dog wanted to be with me more than anything. Today's passage is Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, and Matthew records a story which contrasts those who follow and those who do not. You can follow with me if you'd like. The scriptures in your bulletin, you can look in the Word of God, or you can just listen as I read. When Jesus saw large crowds around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another disciple said, First let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. And as Jesus got into the boat, 
his disciples, catch this, followed him. Suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up and said, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, why are you fearful? You have little faith. And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. I was sitting in my chair during the first part of the worship service, and I noticed a piece of broccoli stuck behind the, the chair. And I, I thought to myself, there's a piece of broccoli stuck on the back of the chair. And then I thought, well, that's kind of strange, because how did that broccoli get there? And I'm like, well, we're... We're in a school. They probably eat food here. And the back of the chair slopes, so the broccoli couldn't have fallen off of the table and landed there because it sloped. So somebody must have thrown the broccoli, and then it stuck on the chair, and then it dried out, and now it's glued, and it's still there. Jackie, it's on the back of your chair. It's right there. So, Jackie, if you get hungry, nobody will say anything. Just reach back, and it's yours. And we can stitch a story together by looking at that and thinking about what might have happened. And you have to understand that when Matthew writes the story I just read, he's stitching a long series of stories together. He's just not whipping out random stuff hoping you could connect it all together. He's telling a story about some people that would not follow Jesus and then stitching it with some people who would. So I want you to see in Matthew where we're at. We're going to take just a few minutes and do the whole entire book of Matthew up to chapter 8. So chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus to show that he came from a king, David, and from Abraham. You remember what Abraham did? Abraham was told to leave the Ur of the Chaldees. He followed Jesus. He followed God blindly, not knowing where he was going or what he was doing. Jesus came from that lineage. In Matthew chapter 2 is the arrival of the wise men, right? The wise men came and they went 400 plus miles across unknown territory following a star to get to Jesus. They were followers. Chapter 3, John the Baptist meets up with Jesus. John was a herald for Jesus. And John the baptizer was told uh, by Jesus, I, I want you to baptize me. And John said, no way. And Jesus says, no, I want, pro I want prophecy and law to be fulfilled. I want you to baptize me. And John followed Jesus' instructions. In Matthew chapter 4, get this. Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted directly by Satan. And Jesus went there. Jesus followed the spirit into the wilderness and passed all those temptations directly from Satan, temptations that each of us fail, if we were to think about it. The second half of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and calls out to some fishermen. It's very interesting. He calls these fishermen to follow him, and it tells specifically what each of them left. He calls the fishermen, and it says they dropped the nets they were mending, and they followed Jesus. Another one said he left his father and his family, and he followed Jesus. Another one left his boat and followed Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. They left the nets, the boats, the family. They walked away, and they followed Jesus. The end of chapter 4, the crowds begin to follow Jesus as a result of his teaching. 
preaching and healing. You've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 5 goes through this progression. It starts out with the Beatitudes, the blessed R's. I call them the happy R's because Makarios and the, your, your pastor shared this, but it means happy are the people who are like this. And he goes through all of these things. And then he talks about what is salt and light and how a Christian is supposed to be salt and light. And he talks about the purpose of the law. And then Jesus talks about true righteousness, not fake righteousness, not a righteousness that makes a bunch of rules up, but true righteousness about loving and divorce and oaths and loving your enemies and lusting. And then in chapter 6, Jesus gives practical applications on how to do what he just said. And he talks about how to give your money and how to pray and how to fast and how to approach your possessions and how not to worry and then in chapter 7, he tells you how to look at your own faults before you start criticizing other people. And then he talks about how to trust God enough to ask and seek and knock. And then he talks about what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of God. And by the way, it's not what you're going to hear on modern contemporary preaching most of the time. What Jesus said it looks like, it's difficult and hard and narrow. You know, a lot of sermons today, and it's wide and wonderful, and everybody wants to come because all these wonderful things are happening. Jesus did not have it like that when he was preaching. Then he ends with two foundations to build your life on. One foundation, you can build a wise foundation on solid rock, the rock of Jesus Christ. Or you can build on a foolish foundation of shifting sand. That's the culture around you and what other people think you should do. And then it's very important. Matthew ends that chapter 7, this recap on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, listen very carefully, he says, when Jesus finished the sermon, the crowds were astonished because of his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority. We're going to come back to that. Sermon on the Mount's over, this massive teaching, one of the longest sermons we have of Jesus he was teaching them like one who had authority. And now we turn to Matthew chapter 8. And last week, Matthew or Adam talked about what's happening with Jesus. And he's healing all kinds of people. Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 8 says Jesus healed them all. Meaning all those who came to ask for healing. Nobody was turned away. Lepers and blind people and lame people and sick people and feverish people. Jesus healed them all. Nobody was turned away. He took care of business and he healed them. And the crowds followed him and thronged to him because of who he was, what he says. And he backed it up with authority over the demons, the sickness, every bad thing you can think of. Jesus backed it up. And then midway through chapter 8, where we read this morning, as a result of this, large crowds followed Jesus. And so in an uncanny move, Jesus decides they should cross the sea to get away from the crowds. You name me one popular church in America today, when the crowds come thronging in, they go the other way. You name one. There aren't any. They're drawing crowds. They're doing anything they can to get a crowd. And Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus wasn't out to get crowds to throng after him. He was there to get individuals to follow him. You understand that? He's not looking for the crowd. He's looking for individuals to make a decision to follow him no matter what. And as soon as Jesus says we're going to go across the sea, a few people come up and say, hey, 
I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Yes, I am. And Jesus says, yeah, right. And the Bible records three people that came to Jesus and said they were going to follow him. And if you look carefully at his responses, it's a little concerning. Because he responds in sort of a, I'm not buying it kind of way. Thanks, but no thanks. Three different people. Two of them are in Matthew, and one is in the parallel passage of Luke chapter 9. So let's look first at the not followers. The not followers. So the first one is there's a scribe. And the scribe says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Man, that's commitment. Isn't that awesome? Hey, Jesus, I'm right here. I'm a, by the way, I'm a scribe, in case you didn't know I'm a scribe. But um, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. You, you can count on me. I'm, I'm going to be there for you. And Jesus, in a very kind and polite and wonderful, accepting way, says, yeah, right. Um, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And we can look at this text and we can read into the passage what was going on here, even if Jesus didn't say it point blank. Jesus knows the heart of men. He knows your heart. If you're not following him today, he knows why. If you're saying that you follow him, but there's some secrets in your closet that you won't give up while you follow him, Jesus knows about them. He wants you to walk away from those things and follow him. And Jesus knows that this guy wants to follow him, but he won't give up the comforts that he has. Consistent with scribe-like protocol, the scribe says, I will follow you. Scribes spent years and years and years learning their task, and they would work under another scribe, kind of like an electrical apprentice, and they would learn the trade. And so he spent many years figuring out his trade, and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. It's a statement of great dedication. I'll follow you anywhere. Much more devoted people like the disciples told Jesus that when Jesus went to the cross, they all ran away. Scribes held important positions. It was kind of like a modern-day lawyer. Jesus, knowing his heart, said to him, you know, it's not as comfortable as you think. It's not just all healing and miracles, right? There's some hard stuff, too. And some of the really hard stuff was coming. And Jesus knew that when the rubber hit the road, when things got difficult, true followers hang around, and those who aren't true don't hang around anymore. We never hear of this guy again. At least we don't know that we do. Um, I think it's possible he shows back up in the Bible. I don't know that. I would speculate. But Joseph of Arimathea was on the council, and the council had some scribes on it. So who knows? Maybe this was Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Gamaliel was in Acts chapter 5 or 6, I think, and Gamaliel was on the council. And so it's possible that someone like this got their act together, became a committed follower, and followed Jesus, but we don't know. All we know is that he did not follow him now, and Jesus said, you know what, this isn't as comfortable as you're going to want it to be. You probably ought to go a different way. A second person comes to Jesus and says, Lord, um, I, I want to follow you, but, but first I'd like to go bury my father. That sounds really respectable. I mean, who wouldn't want to go bury their father if their father needed burying? And Jesus says, follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. Ouch. Imagine, you come to Jake and Adam and you say, the bulletin says if you want to be a member, you're supposed to come see us privately. And so I'm here and I'd, I'd, really, like to, I'd really like to follow you guys and become a member of Redemption City Church and help any way I can. And Adam goes, yeah, I don't think so. Let the dead bury their dead. You go your own way. And you'd be like, what happened here? So Jesus' response is kind of odd. So 
when you first read this, you would think, well, it's perfectly logical for someone whose who's dad died to want to bury their father. So I get that. But see, you have to understand the culture of the time. This guy's father wasn't dead. Okay, this is this is a euphemism. Bury my bury my father is take care of my father till he dies and then bury him and then get my inheritance. So he wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to take care of his dad first to get his inheritance so he can afford to follow Jesus. I call the first guy Mr. Comfortable. I call this guy Mr. Money. It was considerably noble to care for one's parents. It still is. Matter of fact, in biblical times, it was an utmost moral, noble character, integrity to follow with your parents and take care of them till the end of their life. He was unable to commit immediately. His father was almost certainly not dead. And he gives a really, really good reason to not follow Jesus. Let me bury my father first. And Jesus doesn't buy it. And there's a third person that we're just going to slide into our text because it happened at the same time. And Luke 9 tells us about that. In Luke, another person says, I want to follow you, Jesus, but let me go and say goodbye to my family. Seems logical. Seems pretty good. It's kind of like it's a little step down from burying your father. Let me go say goodbye to my family. I call this Mr. Family Man. So we got Mr. Comfortable, Mr. Money, and now we have Mr. Family Man. And Jesus gives him a similarly interesting proverbial comeback and says, any man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Well, that's not a really nice thing to tell someone that just has to go say goodbye to their family. But it's the same thing. Jesus knew the heart. He knew what he was saying. He knew what he was thinking and feeling. And he knew that when he went back to his family, this guy wasn't coming back. Sounds harsh. I'm going to tell you something really important you have to hear right now. Disapproving families are a gigantic reason that people do not follow God. Think about it. Disapproving families are a gigantic reason that people do not follow God. The son was probably just codependent enough to have to go tell his family in the first place, hey, by the way, mom and dad, I'm going to go follow this Jesus. And they would be like, oh, no, you're not. I was 39 years old, and I made the decision with my wife to go to seminary, and I sold uh, my farm and my business. I had three auctions over the course of a couple years and went to seminary. And I was the only son living on a farm in Elkton, Minnesota, and I farmed with my father. And I went and told my uh, parents that we were going to sell out and go to seminary. And I remember my mom and dad standing in my dad's office, and my mom said, oh, give me a break. God's truth. And I had just made this decision, very emotional, very difficult. I had employees and assets and land to go to the ministry. And my mom's response caught me off guard. And she was not happy. And my dad was emotionally distressed as he processed. I farmed with my son in business for 17 years. And he's leaving me with the farm by myself. Now, I want to say to my parents, in my parents' defense, their first response was just their gut reaction. My parents came around and I went to seminary and they came down to visit, and we have a fantastic relationship today, but their initial response was one of disappointment. And I understand that I'm not condemning my parents. We are great today. 
It didn't take them long to come around. But that's not uncommon for people to say they're going to follow Jesus and then their families to say, oh, that's not a very good thing. When I was in Mexico for a mission trip some years ago, I went to a little town called La Providencia up in the hills of Mexico, and there was a lady and her husband there with eight children. They had nine. One had died. They had eight children. Her name was Valentina. And I heard her story through an interpreter, and she lived in a neighboring village, and she came to Christ, made a profession of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ through a missionary, and her family told her, if you don't go to the Catholic Church, if you stay with this denomination, we will kill you. Kill you. And she fled to this little village way up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. No running water, no septic, no toilets. We had an outhouse that we built when we got there because we would prefer to, you know, not bushes, outhouse, whatever. And she lived there with her eight kids and her husband because her family was going to kill her for becoming a Christian. That is not uncommon. A friend of mine in seminary is a pastor in Steelville, Missouri today, and he was a UPS driver, and he went and told his family that him and his wife and their grandkids were going to go to seminary and go be a pastor of a church. And they were, let me just say, quite a bit more than just disappointed. And you know that's true, and some of you right now might be in a situation where you're trying to follow God and you're torn because your family thinks you're crazy. Or maybe you're trying to help a, a new church plant to reach the city of Rochester and your family wishes that you were somewhere else. Listen to me, disapproving families are a gigantic factor and folks not following God. And this guy says, hey, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but I'm going to go say goodbye to my family. Guess what? He ain't coming back. If you followed the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of a disappointed family, way to go. God loves that kind of devotion. So I want to give you a little recap right here before we switch to followers. If you don't want to follow God, you will always be able to find a reason not to. It's just that simple. Matter of fact, in my experience in sharing the gospel with people who are not saved, I have never spoken to an individual who would not follow God who did not have a good reason. You with me? There's a ton of reasons to not follow God. I don't believe all that junk. I was at United Rentals when I was in seminary. I was a service manager at a United Rentals rental store. And there was a guy there named Jeremy, and he was the assistant manager of the store. And I had a lot of conversations with uh, him about God. I was the resident preacher at the rental store. And he told me one time, look, Kevin, he says, I hear all you God talk, but he says, I'm an atheist. There is no God. And so I don't even want to have the conversation. So I gave it my best shot. And I came back with what I think is the best argument against someone who's an atheist. And I was all prepared to share this with my friend Jeremy. So I came back and I said, hey, Jeremy, I want to talk to you for a second. You mentioned that you're an atheist, which means that there is no God. So what you're telling me, you ready for this? It's a great argument. What you're telling me then is that you know there is no God, therefore you're not accountable. Jeremy, do you know that 95% of all people for all time in the history of the world have believed there's someone out there, some God, some creator? You might call it something different than God or Yahweh, but 95%, almost everybody forever has believed there's somebody out there, there's a God. But you're smarter than all of them, and you know there isn't. That's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard anybody say in my entire life. And you know what he said? He goes, well, I'm really not an atheist. I just didn't want to argue with you. And uh, it's okay, so there might be somebody out there. Oh, now we're getting somewhere, right? 
Jesus would have looked at him and been like, oh yeah, right, I've heard that before. If you don't want to follow Jesus Christ, you will have a reason, no doubt about it. Some of you sitting right here in a crowd this size, I guarantee you, you're struggling with whether or not you should follow God. And I know you have a really good reason if we were to talk about it. I know it because I've heard them all. Now we could disprove that reason, but you've got that reason in your heart if you won't follow God. Question for you then, if you're not a follower of God, what's holding you back? Is it, is it comfort? Is it money? Is it your family? Is it bitterness? If you're not a totally devoted follower of Jesus Christ, what's your reason? Let's look at the followers. I love this contrast. Chapter 8, verse 23, And as Jesus got into the boat, his disciples, what? Say the word. Followed him. His disciples got in the boat. It was not comfortable. Little tiny boat out in the Sea of Galilee, a little bit rough and rocky out there. And it wasn't a power boat, no motors like I would like, but oars. And so they got in the boat. It wasn't comfortable. wasn't for the money. Their family would probably not approve. And in just a little while, they're going to be out in the middle of the lake, and they're going to fear for their lives, and they think they're going to die. So is that what you get when you follow God? Sometimes. Sometimes. I want to tell you something very important. Following Jesus or these dedicated followers who got in the boat did not keep them from the storm. Every one of you has got a storm, some kind of a storm. I don't know what it is you do. You know what the storm is in your life, the thing that you wrestle with. Every one of you has got a storm, and sometimes you think, if I just follow God close enough or hard enough or have enough faith, he'll take the storm away. No, it doesn't work that way. The disciples got in the boat with Jesus, and then he brought the storm on. You think Jesus didn't know that was going to happen? Yeah, right. He knew all about it. He was so comfortable with what was about to happen, he took a nap. In the front of the boat, Joel Osteen wrote a book called uh, Your Best Life Now. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for two years. Bestseller, Your Best Life Now. You know what Jesus would call that book? Jesus would probably write a book, and he would probably call it Your Hardest Life Now. Think about it, right? He would probably write a book called Your Hardest Life Now, but Your Best Life is Yet to Come. Right? Isn't that what Jesus would say? Doesn't that sound right? But we all want to hear, no, it's going to be great and fantastic. I know a lot of happy, lost people who don't follow Jesus Christ, who are lulled to sleep by Satan and don't have a lot of adversity in their lives. They have no reason to follow God. Sometimes I see people having a lot of difficulty whose hearts being opened up to God. And I think, yeah, Satan's had you lulled to sleep for a long time. God's shaking the house a little bit here, and you're going to wake up and follow God. We learn a lot more about God in seas of adversity than we ever learn in fields of clover. Right? You know it's true. Jesus got those guys in the boat. He did not protect them from the storm. But when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your storms have meaning. Right? Your storms have meaning. What's happening? God is growing your faith. 
God is teaching you to trust him. You can't trust God if you've got nothing to trust him about. God's growing your faith. God's teaching you to trust him. God is showing you what he can do in your life. And you, like the disciples, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, going through the storms, you're going to be amazed. Mark it down. I know it to be true. I've seen it over and over and over again. You're in the boat. The storm is coming. You're with Jesus. It seems like he's asleep. Come on, Jesus, wake up and help me here. And you're going to be amazed when God steps into your situation. Do you realize that Jesus led them to a place of great vulnerability? I cannot think of many places, maybe in an airplane, because it didn't have them back then. Jesus never took anybody on a plane. I can't think of many places more vulnerable than putting a group of guys out in a boat with no diesel fuel or gasoline or horsepower, just oars, in the middle of a very stormy lake that was prone to storms. I can't think of anything much more vulnerable than that for these guys. You can be walking down the sidewalk or on a road. At least you've got some solid footing. The wind comes up, you can grab a tree. You can hang on. If there's a tornado, you can climb into a culvert. You have some options. You're in a little tiny boat with five, six, eight, ten guys in the middle of a stormy lake with Jesus. You are extremely vulnerable. This boat goes over. You're dead. You ain't swimming out of this one. When you follow Jesus, you just might find yourself led to a place of extreme vulnerability. And you know what they did? They did what you and I would do. The first thing they did when they were in the crisis is they probably tried to fix it themselves. And I'll bet you anything that those disciples grabbed those oars and they're going to power this boat to land. Grab on, boys. We got this. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. We're going to get her to shore. And the harder they rowed, God just smiled and blew a little harder. He says, I'm not going to step in till you think you're going to die. Then I'm going to step in and show you what I can do. And so they did everything they could do. They were experienced seamen. They'd been on the water before. They'd been in storms like this before. They were going to fix it. And when your crisis comes in life, so are you. And God wants you to drop to your knees and fall to him and say, God, I want to follow you wherever you want to go in my situation. Where do we want to go right now? And then the disciples saw so much more of God and the power of God than those who walked away who didn't follow him. They never saw the storm. They never saw what happened. They never saw the water still. And they might have seen it from a distance on the shore, but they weren't out there fearing for the lives. When Jesus said, peace be still, whoosh, glass. Can you imagine that? So I told you earlier, the last verse of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's commentary, just one verse of commentary on Jesus' sermon is he said that Jesus taught the people like one with authority. Guess what? Jesus is not like somebody with authority. He is the one with the authority. Because he stood in a boat that was just about to kill everybody. And he went, peace be still. And it went, boom, and it was glass. Now that's authority. This is not like somebody with authority. This is authority. Even the winds and the waves. Obey him. I have prayed for people that were sick and sometimes they've been healed. And I've wondered, was it me or the doctor? Right. You've all been there. You've prayed for. I remember a lady who couldn't come to church because when I was a pastor and her toe was just nasty and she couldn't hardly walk and it was too difficult. And I went to the to her house with my assistant pastor and we laid hands on her that God would heal her toe so she could come to church. God is my witness. The next Sunday she comes walking in the church and God healed her toe. Was it me? Was it God? Was it our prayers? I don't mean me because I'm not a healer. 
But, but was it the doctor? Was it the medication? I don't know. But when you're in the middle of a boat, the storm, and there's nothing but death coming your way and the sea goes to glass, that's nah, not a coincidence. Right? You following me? The healings were amazing, but this was over the top. Even the winds and the waves obey him. I have a question for you. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And if you're not, are you ready to stop making excuses for why you can't follow? Will you be vulnerable enough in your life to let Jesus call the shots, even if it brings a storm? It might not be easy, but it'll be worth it. Would you like to know one indication that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? I had a salesman in my office this week, and I was working on this sermon. The poor guy. 30 minutes later, he left my office after, I mean, I just said, hey, you, um, you go to church anywhere? Yeah, he goes to whatever. I'm like, oh, well, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, I think I am. I said, well, can I give you one? So anyways, 30 minutes, my secretary and I preached to the, anyways. But, you know, is there any decisions that you make in your life on a day-to-day -day basis or a week-to-week -week basis? Are there any decisions that you make in your life where the only explanation for that decision is you're a follower of God? Think about it. Is there any? If there's no decisions that you ever make in your life where the only explanation is you follow God, you're probably not a follower. Now I'm going to give you all just like one little bit of credit. You're here this morning. God bless you. It's sunny. It's nice. It's been a long winter. And this is a decision to be here and hear the preaching and fellowship with Christians. This is a decision that, that, that the only explanation for this is you have a lot of interest in God. Or possibly a boy or possibly a girl if you're single. Just saying. Find them at the church, not at the bar. Just saying. Are you making the kinds of decisions in your life where the only explanation is you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ means anywhere he wants you to go, anything he wants you to do, anything he wants you to say, anything he asks you to give up, you're willing to do it. I gave you a blank sheet of paper before. I want you to pull it out right now. Just pull it out. I see some of you got pens. I want you to pull that blank sheet of paper out. On the bottom of that blank sheet of paper, I want you to put an X and draw a line. Okay, anywhere on the bottom, just draw a little X and draw a line across. X and a line. I, I know I don't like to play along with preachers that make me do stuff like this, but I just need you to do this because it's really important to me. X and a line. If you buy a car today, you sign about 15 pages of stuff, right? All this liability and all this stuff that you, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do that, you're going to carry insurance and all this. And if you buy a house, there's like 100 pages of paper. Right? If you've been there, you just sign and sign. If you go to the hospital, there's document after document after document that you have to sign because you're at the hospital. I want you to sign your name on the bottom of that page or that exit. Put your name. Sign your name. Sign your name right on there. Boom. Sign your name. Adam Pullman. Molly Pullman. When you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no contract, there's no fine print. You take a blank sheet of paper, you sign your name on the bottom, and then you say to God, you fill in the details. Anything, anywhere, anyhow, anytime, I'm in. That's what it means. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, my heart longs to be a better follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my heart's plea right now is for every single person in this room to be a no excuses made follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bring us the storms, teach us faith, and show us things that we have never seen in Jesus' name. Amen.